Welcome, everybody, to the Literal Fiction Book Club. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex. Hello. And Ted. How's it going, everybody? Um, today, we will be talking about The French Revolution, A History by Thomas Carlyle. This is our first 50 pages into the book. What is everybody's first impression? They say in the introduction that it's more like Milton than it is like... I forget who the historian is they compare it to, but I definitely see that, that it's Milton-esque and that it's like super grand and you can tell it's trying. Yeah, the the epicness of the beginning threw me off quite a bit, especially since the Diderot book previously was uh, of that more narrative history style. And in this, um, there is no confusing how Carlyle feels about the French Revolution. He is literally psychologically disturbed by it. And uh, the mixture of, of story, right? Even just this first beginning passage, the first book is essentially set out to make the King Louis XV's death an allegory to the beginning, the death of the nobility and, and the rise of the revolution. When I first read that, I, I couldn't really, I didn't interpret it as something that, it wasn't understandable to me, uh, but I appreciated it at the end because uh, the way that he ties this analogy between the nobility and a flower, right? Like he talks about the, the blossoming of this, this kingdom and its death uh, was, was particularly compelling. There were multiple pieces that I did like about the opening 50 pages. In the intro, they said that this was ludicroteric, which is a mix of epic and mock epic. I definitely do get that feel of like the mock epic because I've read the first book of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and that was from like the 1780s. So the like hark avast language sounds like much more genuine in that, where you can tell this is like he's setting out to write it this way on purpose. I did like the comparison of like Louis the 15th is dying, but then he goes on for 15 pages about like flowers and the peasantry. And then he comes back to Louis the 15th and it's like, so who cares? I thought that was cool that the second chapter specifically was like, Oh my God, what a Royal blessed person, which they tap into that too. But then it comes back to it. And it's like, does it really matter? Which I think is good, yeah, because France had bigger problems at the time. Yeah, and he doesn't really pull any punches with either the Catholic Church or um, the nobility. There's, he clearly has it out for the philosophes, right? Like, he is not a fan of Diderot or Rousseau or all of them. He thinks they're bad news. But it's almost like he blames the king, uh, the aristocracy, and the church for even letting this happen, Right. So he talked about at one point how the Catholic Church used to be able to like kings needed to come to them in order to be blessed to rule, whereas now they've become the lapdog. Right. Of uh, of the throne, which uh, at least at the very least, it makes him less of like a fanboy of the ruling powers. And therefore, it feels like his uh, his exposure or the way he's going to expose the revolution is going to be more interesting because he's not, it's almost like a, it's like a royal cynicism. Yeah, he's definitely a reactionary. I can understand why alt-right and just straight right people enjoy his writing. Um, I didn't get too much like history history out of this though. Like if I didn't know who 
um, Marapo was, like, nope, <laughs> wouldn't have gotten the context out of this. I would have gotten, like, a couple of really nice paragraphs from it. But, like, in terms of straight-out history, laying out the facts, I feel like it's almost too flowery or it meanders too far to like keep it as a straight thing so i don't know that i would start out with this as a history of the french revolution but i did enjoy it i would definitely agree with that because like I, I kept i honestly went to wikipedia to read about marpo i like specifically did that because i, I i'm not familiar with the history like you guys are um like and i and i definitely agree like the writing is is really beautiful like i think like the way he describes like louis's death and like him like like you know what i mean like his life ending was like like very well written prose but um yeah i'm not i haven't so far have not picked up a lot of like the actual historical context of this aside from the decay of the church as an institution in france and the decay of nobility or you know the fact that nobility had a very limited use to the people of france i agree i also think though that he does do a good job of grouping these characters well, right? So you can pretty much get a sense. I mean, the way he talks about Turgot, for instance, who was um, the controller general of France managing the finances, that he was a friend of the philosophs. So you can kind of get an idea of like what kind of policies he might. And I do agree that it's a bit light on the specific historical facts. Although at the same time, right? Like as he's going through and making these, this, epic story he is quoting from from like the journals of certain aristocrats right he is using a uh, first-hand evidence about what happened whereas now if you were to read like a modern french revolution um discussion it's mostly second-hand sources right it's, it's other french revolutions commentary which for me at least gives this it the immediacy of it is what makes it interesting right so like um carlisle wrote this I believe in like 1830-ish. So we're talking about as far away, you know, Carlisle was as far away from the French Revolution as um, as we are from like 1970 or something like that. So there were still people who had lived through that, right? And lived through the Napoleonic Wars um, and they were probably around Carlisle's age. So the effects of the French Revolution are so immediately felt and you get that, that directness in his writing which um and also with just like little things like one of the the chapter's name is is called austria redux which i have it conveniently on my kindle so i can look what up what that is but that's the return of justice right and it's this mocking phrase that he makes towards the the revolutionaries um and how they've emptied the world of like truth and and the uh sacred um, and they're trying to return to justice, and you can tell this is all just foreshadowing for the the terror, which I assume, um, especially given in the introduction, how they quoted the uh, turning people's skin into leather, like you know, you know where he's gonna go with that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, he definitely sets out for a lot of the literary tropes, or you can tell he's setting things up to characterize people, which he does well, but it definitely is gonna slant the rest of the book. But he is a very good writer. I liked, um, where was it? It was on page 12. As for their debauchery and depravity, it is perhaps unexampled since the era of Tiberius and Commodus. Nevertheless, one has still partly a feeling with the Lady Marichelle. Depend upon it, sir, God thinks twice before damning a man of that quality, which is pretty cool. I just love that phrase. I mean, I guess it belongs to the Madame Marichelle, but 
God thinks twice before condemning a man of that quality. I like that line. That's a good one. Um, there's another line I just highlighted every once in a while, some good turns of phrases. Um, there was one where he says, uh, France was long a despotism tempered by epigrams, and now it would seem the epigrams have the upper hand. So it's this, like an epigram in this case is like a quote, right? And so now it's, now the, the, the epigrams are, are on the rise. And this, like these deep-seated problems, and that's something that Carlisle identifies throughout the book, right, is the naked children in the street, um, that time when King Louis Sixteenth is out um, on a hunt, and there's a peasant that is um, bringing another peasant to the grave, right? And the king asks, like, well, how did he die? And of hunger, right? So, but the, arist the aristocracy is so separated from the rest of society, they can't see the rot around them. Yeah, because they only see the nobility who are their servants now, which is crazy. Like, just how effectively Louis the Fourteenth like dismantled the aristocracy and neutered them from being like the frond to lining up to wipe his ass in the morning. It's just a crazy transformation, but yeah, they never see anybody. They never go to Paris. They're always in Versailles or somewhere and, in the Loire Valley. Right. And they don't even go back to where their lands are, right? Like it becomes just a rent collection. The, the traditional noble relationship to the peasant is, is broken. They're, it's just a collection agency for their taxes so that they can afford to live in Versailles. It's this incredible concentration of wealth and then separation from the, the normal social relations of the society. Which I think, like, I don't know, it, it seems like a, a point he was trying to make is that almost that, like, the nobility has, like, outlived its usefulness as the economies developed. Like, he talks about how cities are being, like, created by laborers themselves to, like, ply their wares or have industry, you know? And at the same time, like, what is the quote? Like, uh, if there's no hunt, the king does nothing or something like that. Like, he, his use is, is so limited at this point, or like in nobility in general, that it makes sense why their legitimacy and like the eyes of like the peasants is just like crumbled to the point that revolution is, you know, possible. I think it's, I think it's different too, just depending on we think of like aristocrats upper class as just the people who are on top which yeah there's like landed people that are going to be rich no matter what like no kardashians ever going to be poor from now on but these people just like born into it for hundreds of years and like a social caste is just i don't know i don't feel like we really have anything that's even comparable no it's one of the reasons why carlisle's writing is so uh fresh i guess is the way to describe it to me right because we don't have this conservatism has no place in american society it would never existed here and we never had a monarchy by which to defend we had some people who were more conservative liberals but the concept of like a true reactionary the restoration of the monarchy is foreign to us and so this um this perspective that um, not only is is foreign to me, but even like when they were discussing what Carlyle's interest was, right? Like the reason why he wanted to write this is epic because he he prefers poetry to prose, and in that way of like a ballad for the king, not in the sense of like uh, an aesthetic preference. Yeah, I think it's also interesting just his writing aside that he chooses the death of Louis the Fifteenth as the starting point. Um, 
I mean, I guess it's kind of necessary, but I was trying to think like where I would start a history of the French Revolution, like not at the Parlement of Paris and then um, all of the financial troubles. It really does have to go all the way back to Louis the Fifteenth, because like it all starts unwinding with him. They even talk a pretty good deal about the American Revolution, which uh, I really liked is on the eighth page. It says America was born on Bunker Hill, which I never thought about it before, but it's like, hell yeah. That was the first time, well, citizens versus their government, yeah, but that's one thing versus like they charge the hill and the militia kills a thousand. Like that's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. But that's an he aside. Speaks, he uh, speaks very disparagingly about the American Revolution and like the advent of democracy, right? And in some ways, not only because the uh, because Louis the Fifteenth made bedfellows with the American Revolutionary, um, or it might have been Louis the Sixteenth, but they sort of set up their own demise, right? Democracy is, is like the name of democracy is now in the air. It's now taken up a political form by which the French revolutionaries um, who were trained, right? So when you think of like the Marquis de Lafayette, right? A huge um, general in the American army who is French. He comes back as a hero. They literally call, call him Scipio Americanus after Scipio Africanus from the Roman Empire. So this is now not just you know as much as carlisle wants to blame or uh lay at the feet the the birth of this movement with the intellectual class um the like the meat of it really comes through with the returning of the soldiers who fought in the american revolution and they are the ones who end up leading the third estate towards the tennis court of, along with the the middle class lawyers yeah, I does think it's interesting of, well, just what he chooses to focus on, because we talked about this with the Diderot book of bias by what you choose to include versus not include. And he could have focused on many different things. I enjoyed most when he's focusing on like the French peasants that are dying of hunger, because that's another thing that's like hard to conceptualize. It's like one thing to be poor. It's another thing for people to be dropping in the streets because the whole country is broke and like there's an aristocratic class that does not give a shit about you. Well, I guess we can kind of sympathize with that, but. Well, but, but I mean, Americans have never, well, modern Americans don't experience hunger. Like that's not an aspect of poverty in the United States. Like fundamentally, it, it is not. You know, we die of other things if we're poor, but it's never of hunger. Maybe not never, but you know. It's very not, it's not particularly likely. Yeah, there's malnutrition for sure, but there's still nutrition of some sort. So like a, a passage that really stood out to me um, was on page 50, like right at the end of this section. And it's, it's, shall we say then, woe to philosophism that it destroyed religion, what it called extinguishing the abomination. Woe rather to those that made holy an abomination inextinguishable. Woe to all men that live in such a time of world abomination and world destruction. Nay, answer the courtiers it was targo it was necker and they're mad innovating it was the queen's want of etiquette but specifically like that section i think was like just like really interesting and like kind of like who the bl- who's bl- the he- feet he lays the blame you know you like that piece i also like further down when he's talking about hope and that 
when hope is deferred, the heart is sick for it, and it's kind of, well, useless, and then it's just sad. So, but Alex, to what you were saying before, the, you know, where he lays the blame, and I thought this was, uh, this was pretty profound, is he talks about how it's the misdoing in all provinces of life as she black or a sovereign lord, each in his degree, from the time of Charlemagne and earlier. So really, the death of the aristocracy and the death of the king, as we're being foreshadowed, is a, uh, it's, it's the cu- accumulation of all of the sins, right? All of the, the excesses and vices of human nature for all time as far as he's concerned, for all civilization. And he writes, like, I think, I don't remember what pages, I didn't write this down, but he writes, the history doesn't happen, it's done. Like, history is something that is is created, is I think what he was trying to get across. It's not something that just happens passively, um, which I think kind of fits in with that. Yeah, I think think not only does it fit in with that, but it's actually something that, that we could even go so far, perhaps, as to say Carlisle is a more uh, progressive thinker in some ways, even just latently. Because he actually believes history is created, right? Most people today believe history just happens to them, right? If at all. If it's even something, it could just be a story that brought us here, but there's only a vague sense of what direction that might be, and there's no sense at all which people... And that specifically stood out to me, because I honestly was kind of surprised to see that attitude. Yeah, the idea of history as a field is definitely interesting, like how it developed at this time going from just being like somebody writing about something and just whatever their thoughts are to an actual science of things you should and should not include. I feel like he's a cool marker on the way to history becoming a true subject on its own versus just somebody who's interested in the past and decides to write whatever the hell they want about it. Which is funny that he decided to write the history of the French Revolution in the style of an epic. Uh, go big or go home, man. He went as hard as you can possibly go. Did you guys read in the introduction about how his manuscript was burned by... That was that was John Stuart Mill, right? Was the one who had it? Thank God damn it, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> like, of but all he the- rewrote the whole fucking thing from memory. But it's also like, I understand if there's accidents, but if somebody gives you a manuscript for, manuscript for safekeeping, it's like, so one thing you can do is not light it on fire. <laughs> This seems to have been a theme for all of these philosophers and intellectuals is they have one copy of the thing he wrote and spent all this time on and somehow it gets destroyed or goes missing or whatever. I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine. I've had situations where I've lost long papers because of not saving them, but it's never been, I would never have be able to put myself in a situation at this point where something that is you know, my masterpiece, my magnum opus, as far as Carlyle's concerned, right, this is his big step onto the intellectual stage, is burned. And then he's has the big dick energy enough to rewrite the whole thing from memory. I mean, that is something that we don't have anymore, is that it's a monumental physical task to create a manuscript, which it no longer is. The, the idea that he, to physically copy that, you know, 800 pages, it was probably much more handwritten wouldn't even be a realistic project to undertake. And it took him three years, which is actually pretty short, considering what he did. I was surprised by how quick it took him. He kind of sounds like a workaholic who didn't really like his wife and really didn't like much of anybody. So 
Yeah, it was a hermit, wasn't he? Just kind of yeah. slinked away from everybody and everything and wrote history. Him and Rousseau would have gotten along. He doesn't. He doesn't probably like wouldn't have though. Friends. They probably would have been pissed because they're too close to each other. They yeah. need their own hermit caves further away. At this point, historically, do you guys think it was even savable? Do you think it was preventable? The revolution. My general point of view when it comes to that is like, so you can make an argument per se that the revolution didn't have to happen then, right? That's fair. Uh, there are reforms that could have been done or different political moves that could be made. But I don't really think that it was savable in the sense of being, being able to be put off forever, right? So like one of the reasons why England didn't have a revolution in this period is it already had a revolution, it had the Glorious Revolution. There was some sense of a parliament, you know, not just the Parlement, which is not a parliament and has no connection to the Third Estate or the people, right? But eventually, if it wasn't going to be in 1789, it was going to be in 1793 or 1794. It could have played out differently. But some revolution was bound to happen eventually, if only because of the American Revolution and then uh, the it wasn't like they were going to be able to f get out of the debt crisis at any particular time. It could have been forestalled for. And then of course, the only thing that might've really strengthened it would be the coming back of the grain, right? So if, if they had a couple good harvests, but eventually the, some sort of crisis was, I don't know, do you, Brett, do you think that it was, that France could have gone in perpetuity without a revolution? Um, I think, it could have been staved off for like maybe 20 or 30 years if there was really, really competent management. But just the like structure of the Versailles government is so archaic and useless that I feel like there was kind of no getting around it. Even a brilliant king in that situation would still have just been worrying about the painted face parties with aristocrats. Um, because, yeah, it would have to be like complete socialism to fix the problem. Like you would have to nationalize everything because people are dying on the streets. Like all food sources would have to be socialized and forcible to redistribution, which in a pre-industrial society is almost impossible. So I think it could have been forestalled like maybe 20 or 30 years if they had figured out the grain problem, but it's just too archaic of a system. And then, yeah, the American genie is out of the bottle. One wonders though, and this is something that I think at least lends to my argument that it would have, if it was staved off, it only could have been staved off by a few years, which is that they did have liberal uh, controller generals, right? People who were trying to reform the system. And every time they tried to do it, whether it was from actually submitting the aristocracy and the clergy to taxes or getting all of these archaic tariffs that go on between all of the different sections of France, they were met with resistance, right? To the point where when Necker is but is being the controller general, he has to keep two sets of books. He has to keep a book, set of book about the real finances of the kingdom of France. And then the one that he eventually publishes and gives out, which um, Carlisle describes a little. And so that was the first time that the literate public could read how the king's finances were. And it looked like everything was fine, but that's only because Necker couldn't actually reform anything. He just needed to, put on the political face that things were okay. And we could even say that if he had published the real numbers, it might've happened earlier, who knows? There are also some people in government that made it impossible, even with the most liberal ministers, like the Comte d'Artois, like 
the arch reactionary that just wants the throne for himself. Like if you have somebody that's that important, like if today you were trying to do something and you had a secretary of defense or state or the treasury or something that was just an adamant reactionary, they're going to sink any plan you do have. Right. And eventually the Comte d'Artois comes back and he becomes the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy, right? So I'm, of all the people that didn't get guillotined, it's like, really, you couldn't have caught him? <laughs> like, come on, guys. Well, he was reactionary enough to get the fuck out of there earlier, right? It was the poor liberal nobility that stuck around and were like, yeah, I'm going to renounce my, I'm not going to be the Duke of anything anymore. And then uh, it didn't exactly. with their heads. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, the French were right. I'm, well, I'm sure we'll get to it in the next 50 to 100 pages, but like these people are in league with the Austrians. Well, what happens as soon as they revolt, like all the nobles run to Austrian territory. So they weren't wrong. No, of course. King Louis the Sixteenth was, if he had made it out, and we'll get to his escape eventually, like if he had made it out, he 100% would have come back, but with an army behind him. I mean, I don't even know if it would be up to him at that point, right? Because the, the kings of Europe, right, don't, this is a big incestuous web that they have all over the place. And to have something like a, a republic of a militant republic on their continent is not in their interest, which is why they tried to put it down. And they didn't actually even expect what France's reaction would be, which was to arm the masses of people and then send them out and conquer all of Europe. I mean, France's success is pretty unexpected, but at this point, especially just because the army is dilapidated as well um he hasn't really touched on it here yet i hope he does um it was touched on in a book i read about napoleon when he was younger just like how far behind the french army was falling like their artillery was pretty good but they were pretty far behind the british and the prussians in terms of like infantry tactics and stuff for the time um so that they go from that to conquering the whole continent in the space of like two years is pretty crazy well i mean at least you know, this is a bit of a digression, but at least Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars were the first, like, mass wars since Roman times, basically, right? There was the small professional armies of these little, these kingdoms or dukes and duchies, right? That those didn't, those produced, like, somewhere, I think, average of, like, ten to 20,000 soldiers. And then all of a sudden, like, with the levee on mass, right, you have 600,000 willing Republican soldiers, and then that produces the reaction of now the kings of Europe have to go to the peasantry and be like, you have to fight for king and country. And so now we have mass warfare. The tactics of that era still just terrify me that it'd be like you shoot once or twice. It's like, all right, everybody fix your bayonet and charge. And then it just becomes an army of spearmen. And it's like, you're just going to charge in and bayonet people until you get bayoneted. And the French just had enough people to overrun the Austrians and the Prussians, which is just like, oh, God, I can't imagine being in a battlefield where you're just standing, waiting to get shot. And then you, there's just like a mass of people with spears running at you. That sounds yeah, horrifying. And you, and you can't see shit because the whole point of like military discipline is that you shoot your musket and then a bunch of smoke comes out and you can't see anything. So you shoot it again if you can. And then, like you said, then at some point you are charging and somebody is going to run into somebody other, somebody else's shirt. Shit. And then you die. 
I understand why I've heard the criticism before, like, oh my God, the Europeans are so stupid. Why did they wear bright colored uniforms to identify themselves? Well, they had to because there was so much smoke in the air that you couldn't tell who was who unless you were wearing like a very distinctly colored uniform. So the French have blue, the British have red, the Prussians have like a grayish green. Um, makes sense in my mind anyway. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's the same type of criticism that we moderns make against like standing in a line, right? You stand in the line because it creates a better uh, spread of fire and it is more likely to hit your opponent because those guns weren't particularly accurate. Uh, that only becomes a problem in post-Napoleonic Europe, right? The American Civil War is the first time that that becomes a uh, human issue. And then we see the culmination of that anachronism in World War One, which is why we think of it uh, in a particularly shitty manner. All right, back to the actual book. I mean, I love Napoleonic <laughs> warfare. It's awesome, but... Um... I was just thinking about Alex, you had mentioned when the king sees the peasant die. Um, that did stick out to me too. And then, but what it says next, so it's like, what did he die of? Of hunger. And then it's like, dot, 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 the king gave his steed the spur. <laughs> All right, right on then. So I think Carlisle does a good job of setting up the emotional content of each of the estates. We haven't really gotten a look into the priesthood yet, but I assume that uh, that that he will that will become more important as the uh, estates general is called. But we get a good sense of the, the isolation of the aristocracy, the suffering of the peasantry, the new urban masses in Paris, and the little bits of relationship we get are in those, those little anecdotes. And they, I'll be interested to see how well he connects all of these ideas at the end, right? Since it's written in the form of an epic poem. Uh, I wonder if, you know, they're like, how is he gonna end the book? Is it gonna be with Robespierre, right? And um, are we gonna get connections between these analogies? Like we got all of those floral analogies in the beginning. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you two about was the very, very beginning, right? Is a couple, it's like three letters from like French aristocrats. And I found them completely opaque. I did not understand what they were trying to get at. I don't know if you guys did. What letters? I don't really remember. So it's like Louis the Well-Beloved is the first section of the first chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like they're expats, aristocrats, as far as I can tell, talking about the, like, how sad they are that the, the king is dead. Uh, and I just... I found the writing of it opaque. I wondered if it was because we're writing in an aristocratic tone or in a, in aristocratic prose. I mean, perhaps. I know that um, the French language did change after the revolution. I've even heard a theory that the reason that the French drop all of their last syllables is that it was aristocratic to pronounce everything correctly and all of those people got killed. So <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but... I like the idea of it. <laughs> when was French solidified as a national language in France? Like French as we know it today. Do you guys, either of you guys know? No idea. I'm not sure. That's a good question though. I think, I think it's, it's surprisingly modern. Sam, to your point, I, I found the first chapter to be close to incomprehensible. If I'm going to be completely honest, I read it twice. Um, and yeah, I'm with you. I found it very opaque, very, very hard to figure out what exactly the, the point was. Yeah, the only, the last part, the last sentence of that chapter 
yes, will he die? That is now for all France the grand question and hope, whereby alone the king's sickness has still some interest. And that was the only part that made any sense, right? Like I got the general idea that there was some melancholy and regret around, and these all are post, um, these are all before. These, this is about, or some of them are after the French Revolution, and then some of them are before King Louis XV's death. And you get a sense of loss, but all of it is, there's too many, there's too many names that are not recognizable, right? like perhaps important priests or something like that in the royal court. And I remember uh, a, a friend of mine mentioning that when you are studying something like pre-revolutionary France, like the politics of it, it is very difficult to understand exactly what was going on because they don't really operate in a way that we find comprehensible. They're like sets of rituals the things that are their priority or matter to them, even the thoughts that they have to themselves are not, they, they don't express themselves in the same modern terms, especially the aristocracy, right? Because part of its, part of its point, its insularity is expressed in language. Hmm, that's interesting. I've never looked at, I guess, their like pattern of speech before the revolution. I mean, I know that it's once you get like prior to 1830, I just, I can't imagine what it's like to live in a pre-industrial society. I've tried, but I can't like, I can't unknow like electricity running water and the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. But then how they dealt with things and then also what their thought patterns were like, not knowing the things we know, it's just, it's too much for me to be able to put myself in their shoes, which is sad because I would very much like to. Right, and it's that there's like a thread of humanity that goes through to the point where you can empathize with certain basic qualities about their existence, like the hunger, right? Like we don't know what it's like to starve, but we do know what it's like to be hungry. Or the the oppression, right? Uh, there was that one scene that I thought was extremely telling where the peasants who are starving, or it might even be the urban workers, bring a petition to the king, and then they're immediately shot afterwards which i thought was was telling yeah the treatment of the third estate not not great running up to french revolution not a great track record of just not being disparaging like they don't even have to accept them but just not being complete dicks to them would really have done them well right but this is the thing that and this is when we were talking about the possibilities of the french revolution that like whether it was inevitable or whatever the these kinds of problems were not something, they were exceptions, not rules, right? So you didn't have, in feudal society, generally speaking, there weren't that many vagabonds, right? And uh, people with no home or no place to be. And then all of a sudden, right, Paris grows immensely, and you have this issue of urban poverty, and they only, you know, when you see a nail, you grab a hammer kind of thing. And, but that problem increases in magnitude and they just can't even conceptualize that this is anything special or different. It's just the same problem of a few bad apples that they need to, you know, inter, shoot, you know, whatever, right? But not, they don't recognize the qualitatively new aspect of the world that's gestating inside of. I feel like it's really hard to for an aristocracy or any vest interest to realize something, especially if it's in the future, better for society, but against their interest, it's pretty hard to come to grips with. 
or they just wouldn't even want to because if they accepted it and that's the way that society was going, it means that they're becoming obsolete. So I don't know if, I wonder if it's like they didn't see it or they just refused to. Well, so they're, you know, their enemies, right? The philosophers often did come like Mirabeau, for instance, who's like the ultimate traitor to the aristocracy. He was a revolutionary aristocrat. He died before he could get his head chopped off in all likelihood. But uh, they, there were liberal nobles and that's something that is, you know, a little bit, I don't know if this is expressed in, in you know, Marxists take up the French Revolution, the Marxist historians do, uh, but I know that the Marxist historians have taken it up. I don't know who who wrote the Marxist histories of the French Revolution, though. So it was a lot of uh, Stalinists. There's this one guy, Lefebvre, who apparently wrote a quite good um, history of it. I have a list somewhere. There's the organization I'm a part of. They have a, they have like a list of, of French Revolution histories. This is one of the classical accounts. Alexis de Tocqueville has one. Uh, Does he really? I, I didn't know he had one. Yep, I think it's called like, um, like the old and the new French society or something along those lines. He actually was one of the, you know, with, um, so de Tocqueville eventually gets to 1848 and he is, he sees the, the revolution of that time kind of appear in the same way that Marx does, but they both misunderstand it in a little curious ways. I like that title though, the old and new society, because it really is, I don't know, it's hard to imagine like outside of the French and the Russian revolutions, potentially the Chinese. It's like the American Revolution didn't change American life that much. It was just the aristocratic nobles on this side of the ocean kicked out the ones from the other side of the ocean. Whereas the French Revolution completely reorganized society. Like it changed things socially and economically in addition to politically. Um, just the magnitude of the French Revolution, I hadn't, I don't think has really like been seen quite some time. I know that the American Revolution was the thing that kicked it all off or let the genie of democracy out of the bottle. But in terms of like society just coming apart at the seams, I can't really think of a period in the preceding centuries that would be comparable. Like maybe the 30 years war in Germany, but they were never united. So it doesn't have the same thing. This is like the French eating themselves. Right. And then, you know, as we alluded to before, right, with Napoleon at the end, then it gets exported in a way that it hadn't. And you have the Napoleonic codes and you have the pushing back of, of feudal ties and the abolition of serfdom, which wasn't, was a convenience for the French army, not something that like they did out of, you know, enthusiasm for the peasants, uh, but still it occurred. But yeah, we haven't had anything, like you said, I think the Russian revolution is probably the, the, and the Chinese Revolution, right, are the two examples. But, you know, the French Revolution is the, that's the centerpiece, right? Because even when you think about the American Revolution, um, I would, depending on who you were, right, and I think this goes for the French Revolution too, is like, yeah, if you are a country bumpkin in the countryside, maybe it doesn't affect you. But um, it definitely, like the residents of Boston or Philadelphia or, um Charleston, right? Like those towns were deeply affected and changed quite a bit because of the American Revolution. And same goes for like Paris, right? Or Lyon um, or Toulouse. Whereas uh, the the peasantry is only really activated at, towards the end um, or is involved in the anti-Catholic wars um, during the revolution. Um, but it is 
an expansion of society, right? All of a sudden society is uh, alive for a lot more people than it was previously. Yeah, I like that of society coming alive. And then also the difference between, um, well, politically reshaping things versus we're going to completely literally decimate the top class of people, take all of their wealth and then going from a reactionary monarchy, like one of the most religious and right-wing monarchies to being like the most liberal republic, which is cool because France still does have that like strain of leftism, which all started here, which I like, endears me to them. Yeah, I, I do think that that's one of the admirable parts of, of the French political tradition. And you can even see it with the Yellow Vest movement, right? Like there is a, a desire and a, a rich tradition uh, of- Burning shit down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and because, you know, the class lines in America are not as obvious, right? The, it's less about where you were born. I mean, statistically, this might not be the case, but it's perceived as it's less about where you, where you were born and more about how much money you have. It doesn't have the same effect. Like I, I could go into a, a, I could go into a gas station, right? And be next to a millionaire and I just wouldn't know it. Right. But if you were, uh, you know, as a peasant, if you were in the wrong spot with, uh, you know, a, a noble or right, um, and a lot of the old money in France, right, eventually it just continued. It it's still with them. Um, obviously, there was expropriations during the revolution, but uh, and this is something that I feel is missed quite often is when you start like creating these boxes and say, okay, here's the aristocracy and here's the rising bourgeoisie and here's the peasant class and the artisans or whatever, right? There's all kinds of interplay within that. And eventually, you know, some aristocrats were more progressive and they said, you know, okay, you know, I'm not so attached to this Catholicism and and I don't really have this, you know, sacred affinity towards the land or whatever. And they went and they innovated. They did... Um, you know, we've read Anna Karenina before, right? They did the Levin thing, and industrious, progressive, um, feudal landlords, and then eventually became part of the the, the bourgeoisie, right? Um, similarly, right, the the ascending middle class, they could buy their way into the nobility. That was one of the ways that they got ahead, so that they could get the tax breaks, um, which was one of the the big. Uh, economic turning points, at least, for the middle class and why they wanted to be represented. You know what must really have sucked? The people that lost the most is the ones that their grandfather under Louis the Thirteenth. they were the ones that, like, nobility of the robe, the people that, like, bought magistracies and stuff, versus, like, the nobility of the sword, which were the medieval bloodline heritages anyway so to buy your nobility like a hundred years ago and then you're the grandson and then you get chopped like that's the worst of it is the worst of luck and i mean how could they see it coming right the french revolutionaries didn't see it coming they didn't know what they were doing yeah it's crazy to me how much of history is just people not knowing what they're doing and then like by happen happenstance or accident um or in complete we get what happened <laughs> which i always think nothing goes according to plan. no not at all and uh that's you know one of the riddles of history right is like how do you make history conscious how do you make it something by which we um we act 
I mean, we act on history, but history acts back on us, right? Um, and it's that, you know, that's what the art of politics is, is being able to, um, how do you coordinate as a, as a group or as a society to take advantage of the situations that, that are presented to you? I don't think that the French revolutionaries would have been able to, uh, to see that far, right? Because society barely even existed uh in the modern sense right yes society but, was your villain right that was it you know? and the cosmopolitanism that came out of the enlightenment and the you know new merchant um or you know we could call like pre pre-capitalist but bourgeois society that that was not only brand new but also fairly narrow in who it applied to i am interested in the transformation of the peasantry um, for anybody listening, Mike Duncan's uh, Revolutions podcast is excellent. Um, he does a, I think it's a 55 like hour long episode. So 55 hours in total, but it's definitely worth a listen. But going through like the third estate, who they are, and then really their complete transformation and politi- politicalization from just somebody that lives on the land to becoming a citizen of a state is just I don't really know how to convey how huge that is. It's like you're being born, like you're nothing and then become something. And then of course you get drafted in the Levan Mass and go die in Austria. So right. not all, it's not all great, but. Yeah, but you also view yourself as like a, you know, a Republican soldier, right? It's like. You're, you're dying are, as a citizen, not a. Right. And there was, you know, it is overplayed, right? And you get that sense, especially when you read like French revolutionary speeches that like, yeah, I don't think everybody was as happy to die for the, for France as you think they are. But there was a deep sense of um, commitment to the to the revolution. And they thought that they were freeing, right? A lot of them just thought they were were freeing Europe, right? Um, and this was part of the dream, right? Of even a American revolutionary like Thomas Paine, right? It was about creating an international republic. I mean, that's what being, being a patriot didn't have anything to do with fealty towards your country, it was fealty towards your fellow man. It was to free man from the bonds of, uh, of tyrants, right? These usurpers. In uh, Payne's Common Sense, he basically makes the argument he, you know, when the English king is trying to justify his rule, right, he just draws the genealogy of the king back to the first usurper, right? I think it's like William the Conqueror comes over and starts the king. And he's like, well, how does that give you any authority to rule? And so, you know, similarly with this explosion of society and then the, you know, the militarization of French society, all, all of a sudden, Peasants now have a stake, not in their land, but in in France. It's an interesting jump, though, from their land to France, but then also in their idea of that you matter as a political force. And then eventually, I wonder when that transition happens, actually, now that I think about it, like individual personhood mattering and then it diverting into your labor map, which comes with industrialization. I was just wondering, I, I'm trying to think, when in history would that transition? Like you go from peasant to somebody who's autonomous, maybe you're an artesian, and then within like 30 years, you're swallowed back up, basically a peasant serf again, working in a factory. And just like, but the idea of you have individual worth or value to a nation because you are the French, like, the king derives power from you. It's a cool concept. It is. And I think it's 
you know, it's probably not like a point, right? It's a set of processes that eventually, right? Because once uh, once industrialization occurs and then people go to the cities to look for work um, and then they, the work they find, right, is, uh, is industrial. But I don't know if it, you know, for some people, right, like one of the reasons why France was so far behind England in industrialization was because of the guild system, same thing with Germany, right? They had these entrenched artisan interests that obviously didn't want to compete with cheap mass-produced product. So, there, you know, when, when a French peasant became identified itself with France, I mean, if I had to guess, it would have to be on the military level, right? Because that's going to be its most direct interaction with the state, either in a positive or a negative sense, right? Um, because one of the other things that um, I know Carlisle's going to touch on is the anti-Catholicism. And he's mentioned that a few times on a rhetorical level. But the confiscation of church property, the the fighting, the, the war in the Vendée, which is like a peasant uprising in favor of the Pope um, that the French Revolution has to, to be back. Those are all going to be strong themes. Yeah, I'm excited to see where the book goes because we're still in like part one of the prologue like the story doesn't really kick off for another couple years really or now we're going to get into the reign and misrule of louis the 16th so i'm excited to see where it goes i like it thus far it's pretty flowery i did find myself kind of when i was reading skimming but somewhere between skimming and reading some of it but he does have some very good phrases I agree. There's, I'm trying to find, there was one, there was one good line where he was talking about how, like, I think the, the, like, nobility was like a, an exhausted horse or something like that. So he says, this 10th May day falls into the loathsome sickbed, but dull unnoticed there, for they, uh, for they that look out of the windows are quite darkened. The cistern wheels move discordant on its axis. Life, like a spent seed, steed, is panting towards the goal. Um, and so I believe he's, you know, he's talking about the, I believe the death of the monarchy and like just that idea of like a spent steed, right? Panting toward its goal. It can't, can't quite make it. All right, boys. Um, it's been, I think about an hour now. So let's, um, what page are we going to read? Uh, let's do it by chapter since I think our, we have some different versions of it. Mm-hmm. Book three, chapter one, the Parliament of Paris. Book four starts on page 98, which isn't a lot of reading, but um, book five starts on page 128. So I think that I'd would be probably... happy to. Yeah, let's do the book five. I think that's probably a pretty good. Oh, Lordy. Book five is the third estate. So by page 128, we should be getting to um, the actual tennis court oath. We're getting close to it. Yeah, I feel like he, I, like I said, I'm not really sure where it's going to end because he is kind of going at a pretty slow pace. So. Yeah, it's very slow. He has a lot of pages to fill it up. <laughs> <laughs> there was no internet uh, back then. You could do whatever you want. You couldn't be distracted by Instagram. Yeah, what else is he doing? What else is he going right. to do at this time? Yeah. Not loving his wife. <laughs> Car- Carlisle didn't know shit about memes, all right? So... <laughs> Alrighty, so um, we're going to read chapter five, and uh, if you would like to follow along, um, please do, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you later.